it's been kind of great to be able to witness a lot more people becoming sober and a lot more people creating like wellness spaces seeing people host like beating nights or getting together with other individuals or going hunting and it's becoming more and more normalized to make that choice to become sober and I can see the support systems growing too which is kind of exciting where people are cheering other people on. Hello and welcome to Addiction Practice Pod, a podcast from the BC Centre on Substance Use about approaches to substance use, care and treatment. This is a podcast for healthcare providers focused on issues in British Columbia. This season, we'll be spotlighting Indigenous perspectives on topics around substance use and addiction. And we'll focus on issues relevant for Indigenous people who use substances and discuss strengths-based approaches for all healthcare providers. And we're recording this on the unceded traditional territory of the Coast Salish peoples, including the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh nations. The reach of this work touches on over 200 First Nations in BC. Hi, I'm David Ball, a journalist with a decade of reporting on substance use, mental health, public health policies, and Indigenous issues. In this series, we'll hear from Indigenous clinicians and people with lived experience on approaches to substance use care that work. Today, we're exploring approaches to healing and wellness in rural and remote Indigenous communities. And to help me do so, I'm joined by Dr. Esther Tailfeathers, a family physician who lives and works in the Kainai Nation, or Blood Reserve, in southern Alberta. Thank you so much for being here, Esther. Thank you, David. Thank you for giving me this opportunity. Well, it's, it's a real honor. Can you just share a little bit more about the work that you're doing and what led you into this work? Well, actually, what led me into this work was we weren't seeing any of the overdoses until 2014. We were seeing the typical emergency room overdoses, which were from prescribed narcotics or opioids, Tylenol-3, Percocet, morphine, and then some of the benzos. But in 2014, we got hit really hard in our rural hospital with one overdose after another until we discovered it was fentanyl that uh, wasn't on the toxicology screen. But since 2014, the whole nation has been hit with the opioid crisis as well as now polysubstance drug poisoning. And there's a really powerful National Film Board documentary I wanted to, to mention here by your daughter, Elmaya. Can you tell us the name of it and a bit about making that? Oh, that documentary is called Gimma Bibitsen, and it's uh, the meaning of empathy. Uh, and it was done by my daughter, Elmaya Tailfeathers, over about a five-year period. And uh, so she documented our journey from discovering harm reduction and the use and need for harm reduction in our communities. And then moving along the uh, continuum of care to introducing ORT, which is opioid agonist therapy or replacement therapy, which started with Suboxone and um, methadone in our community, which was not at that time acceptable to people in the community. So we started with basic harm reduction, um, the naloxone. And in March of 2015, we did a whole community train the trainer introducing naloxone before it was a nationally accepted therapy. But we started here, the first First Nation in Canada, to have that uh, tool and went on to opiate replacement therapy and then to detox and treatment and aftercare. 
we're basically not a remote community, but we're a rural community in a place where harm reduction is not acceptable in southern Alberta. And so it's been a battle with the, the community around us to help them understand the importance of harm reduction. So that film is about this journey. One thing that really struck me was the kind of compassionate eye it took to the different approaches to substance use in the community and that it's not just one path. Can you describe some of the ways your clients have incorporated cultural-based healing into their wellness journeys? Yes, thank you, David. I think that what we have to remember is that our addiction started with the breaking of connections. So our connections to the land were broken when we were put on reservations or reserves and not able to get to the areas where we could hunt and gather not only food, but medicines. And then a secondary connection, which it has contributed to the um, disease that we see across the country and across North America, and in fact, in most Indigenous communities around the world, is uh, residential schools and the disconnection from family and the disconnection from language and culture, which, you know, was a very effective colonial tool, which we are still dealing with today. And our job today is to start reconnecting people to land which is part of becoming whole again and reconnecting people to family and relationship and mostly to self. And that is probably the most important core of, of both traditional and Western medicine. But we know in traditional medicine that this, the spirit or the, the whole of one person is very important in the healing process. And we can throw as many Western medications as we want or therapies as we want at it. But until a person feels whole, we cannot look at real healing. Mm. I'm wondering, as a rural physician, can you sort of describe the realities of substance use care for your clients in the communities where you practice? Like, how do those circumstances impact your clients? There's a number of issues. One is, first of all, the um, access to primary care, because it's primary care physicians and addictions physicians that do the prescribing for opiate replacement therapy or agonist therapy. And it took a long time for people to understand that opioid addiction is nothing like what we know from alcohol addiction, because we expect that abstinence-based therapy for alcohol is achievable, but with opioids, it's very, very hard to achieve immediate um, abstinence. So, you know, it's very important that the primary care physicians and addictions physicians are there for people in the communities to prescribe things like opiate replacement therapy and suboxone, methadone, sublocade. So most of our communities that have not had proper primary care in the first place still are left without prescribers and people that help support them through that therapy. And so that's one is the abs absence of primary care. The second is travel to primary care or travel to the places that they can get help. And then the third is access to the pharmaceutical therapies such as the suboxone or the methadone, which requires sometimes daily witnessing. And that is, is almost unfeasible for some communities that have a long way to travel. Um, on today's episode, we're going to be talking with a guest, Helen Knott. She's an award-winning author, activist, and Indigenous wellness program developer in Fort St. John, BC. Esther, I'm wondering, what are you excited to learn from Helen? Do you have any burning questions for her? What I've seen is her exciting bio and the work that she's done. So, And she has or is a person with lived experience. So I'm very excited to hear 
about her journey and about where she found her strengths and then how she gives back to her community. So I think that we're going to have a very interesting time listening to her. Absolutely. So let's welcome our guest today. Helen is of Deniza, Nihiao, Métis, and European descent from Prophet River First Nations, living in northeastern BC. She's the author of the national bestseller, In My Own Moccasins, and recently published Becoming a Matriarch. And she's the founder of a wellness program called Fierce with Heart, offering a holistic Indigenous approach to healing. Hi, Helen. Welcome to the show. Hi, David. Thank you for having me. So to introduce myself, I'm David Ball. I'm a journalist, and my background is of British, Scottish, and Irish descent from settling in the Ottawa Valley and Algonquin territories. And I'd like to introduce Esther Taylor Feathers as well. Hi, Helen. I'm so pleased to join you today. Thank you very much for inviting me to be part of this, this session. It's going to be a lot of fun. I'm so excited for today. Helen, could you start just sharing a bit more about yourself and the work that you're doing with Fierce with Heart, please? Yeah, my name is Helen Knott, and I am the maternal granddaughter of the late Junie Bigfoot and the late Daryl Street and the paternal granddaughter of the late Jerry Knott and late Lillian Knott. I live in my home territory, but I live in, town, in a town, so I live in Fort St. John in northeastern B.C., and I currently am working on a lot of creative projects. So I'm currently working on a script. I am going to be working on my third book, which will be a fiction. And I've been doing some contract work for my community, primarily around cultural teachings and bringing those pieces back. And then also doing some workshops through my own company, whether it be related to writing and or primarily work with Indigenous women around self-discovery and wellness. Hmm. I wanted to talk about the memoir, which we mentioned, your memoir in My Own Moccasins. It includes themes around wellness and substance use. It's been widely read across the country. Could you share a little bit about what inspired you to write it and maybe what you were hoping to convey through this offering? Yeah, so there was one night I was in the bathtub, which is like my cocoon where I'm surrounded by water. And I was in like this state of like relaxation, but also prayer and there was just this prompt of like, write, you need to write your story. And I was like, okay. So I got out of that bathtub and I wrote the first 10 pages of what would become my book. But I was very conscious of the fact that someone would pick up that book who had a story very similar to mine. So I wanted to be as honest as I could about what that process looked like. And I allowed it kind of to go through this space of like refinement because I went over a lot of trauma that I had been through specifically sexual trauma but then looking at how addiction and um, colonization had impacted my family over over generations so every time I went back I allowed myself those feelings as I went through so there was a lot of angry drafts before we got to the part where you know people were able to hold that book in their hands Mm. And I know that the book, while it delves deep into the the traumas, it also has so much of your healing journey. And I think that's really what resonated with so many people and book clubs and readers across the country and across the province. Could you maybe talk about that journey and how maybe the book fit into the journey and, and also how, how it sort of interacted with that part of your life? 
Yeah. I feel like it was within the first few days of the book coming out, I had someone reach out and tell me what it had meant to them and their journey. And I remember going to my mom, she was so alive at the time and being like, mom, look. And I read that message to her and I was like, it was all worth it. Like if it was just one person, then that whole process is worth it. And over the years, even still to this day, I get messages from people and I think some of them like ranging in their late 50s to early 60s down to like 15, 14, 13, talking about the similarities in our stories. And so I've been very grateful to be a holder of space and holder of stories where people will share with me and to understand what kind of like lightening the load that book has has done. I remember something that I was told early on was like, you know, something's not yours unless you you give that teaching away or you teach it to someone else. And I really feel like that's a part of what I was supposed to do in this world. You've talked a lot about recovery when it comes to substance use and how much of a healing journey that's been. Could you say a little bit about that for us, please? Yes, I feel like when you watch movies or read books about like addiction, you're like, and then they got sober, the end. But it's not like that when you're living it. I remember someone asking me, I think it was maybe like seven years sober and she was newly sober, like a year and a half. And she was like, what is the point of this? Like, I wake up miserable. I'm miserable all the time. Like, sometimes I just want to give up. And I was like, yeah, there's a stabilization period that a lot of people don't talk about. And for those first two years, like, I was on a roller coaster. And what kept me sober was actually beading, like learning how to bead because it was such a meditative process. And days when I was like, I don't want to get out of bed. I don't want to do anything. I was like, I can bead. That's something that I can do. So learning to be able to do those things were huge. And I had to get really good at getting ahead of myself in regards to, you know, if I noticed a thought come up that said like, hey, I want to drink. And I could shoot that away and be like, okay, something's off. What's off? Where am I off balance? So learning how to identify it really quick, learning how to really humble myself when I was at that point of like, wanting to drink and call someone and get in my own way and admit to people. I feel like now it comes less and less, but it doesn't mean it doesn't come. And I'm 11 years sober, coming up on 12 now, but it's still there. I have to say that you have so much courage to write this book. And um, I, I thank you so much for your story. Mm -hmm. So from your perspective, what are some of the key issues that individuals living in rural and remote communities face when it comes to accessing substance use care? I feel like one of the biggest issues is just access to resources when you're living in a rural space. So usually if there is access to some kind of provincial mental health type of deal, it's like backlogged. I know here, after you finally get in, you can see someone as maybe once a month, which isn't enough for someone who's you know, working through concurrent disorders, so mental health and addiction, or either or. I remember at 15 years old showing up at an AA meeting and walking in, and it was like me and like seven cowboys in their 50s. And I was like, I do not belong here. But being like, trying to find places where it also is reflective of yourself. And I feel like it takes people who are well to start to cultivate a lot of those 
spaces. So for example, I noticed that there was a lot of people coming back from treatment here in our community from the surrounding communities. And so I organized just like a sober night out, a sober Saturday where we'd go for appies and then we would go to a meeting. I don't go to meetings anymore, but I know sometimes it's the first meeting that can be the hardest for people, like my own family and their challenges with accessing resources. Some of it comes around like the stigma around it, right? Not only by the interactions with healthcare workers, because I know my dad is specifically like so stubborn, like is one of those people like you have to drag him into the hospital, right? And then finally going in and then someone making him feel like he's trying to like get like T3s or something like that, where I was like, he doesn't ever go in and, and that'll push him away from accessing healthcare in the future, right? But I also look at some of my younger siblings who are like, in their teens and signing up for therapy or whatever that looks like. And me being very happy of like, ah, you know, this generation just building on what our parents did. And I was talking with my cousin. I'm like, we've learned a language of healing and our children are familiar with that. And they're so, so much further ahead because they have this language of healing. Yeah, thank you for that. I totally agree with you. And I really appreciate the uh, language of healing that's taking place with younger people, because I don't hear it from the generation older than me. And uh, our narratives are often about our trauma. And we sit around the table and we hear trauma narratives like, did you hear what happened to so-and-so? Or, you know, this happened to me. And so the the conversation kind of leads towards the trauma. And I'm not so sure that that's a, a very healthy conversation. I mean, we're talking about it, but we're, you know, we're staying in that space of trauma rather than moving into the space of healing. So I love to hear the language of healing that's going on and the inspiration that younger people are giving us because they recognize or you recognize that we're in a state where we can change the narrative and help younger people to understand that there are sources out there. But I also do recognize what you're saying about the stigma from Western practitioners on, you know, the the issue of uh, addictions among our people. And it's a very judgmental system and working within the Western medical system. I can hear it when I'm in the emergency room and the nurse switches her tone of voice because she recognizes somebody that's a chronic alcoholic and is in with an injury secondary to, you know, their alcoholism. And I can just hear the judgment and it just kind of lands in my chest like, my goodness, this guy is here, you know, he has a medical chronic condition Alcohol use disorder is a medical condition, and yet the the Western uh, medical field tre- treats it like a moral condition. And so the morality of, of how we treat um, people, not just Indigenous people, but other people with addictions, has to re- be removed from um, how medicine treats mm-hmm. people with you know alcohol use disorder or opiate use disorder. The other thing I wanted to say is we know that people with addictions it's not from A to B to C and you're done and yay, you've graduated and you'll be healthy. It's a continuum and people sometimes have issues that bring them back to the addiction. They may be forced to experience homelessness. But the one thing that I'm finding is successful in our community and every community is the people with addictions that are most successful in their recovery are surrounded by love. 
and they're surrounded by, you know, a grandmother or a mother or a cousin or a relative that stands by them and loves them. And the people who relapse more easily are very isolated and don't have those loving influences. So I think that is something that our communities are unaware of, is that we have the ability to love each other and support mm -hmm. each other. I love that. And yeah, you're right. It's so much more than just even those beginning stages of like choosing to go to treatment or choosing to access counseling, but also when you come back from these spaces and if you don't have housing, where do you end up? And what does that look like in terms of like a culture of healing? Usually not the greatest, right? And it sounds so weird to say, but like relapse is normal. Like it happens. It shouldn't be the end all beyond. I think as addicts and alcoholics, we're very much like all or nothing type of people, right? Like my therapist once told me like, you need to learn how to be a sum or something type of person, right? So when relapse happens, knowing like this isn't the end of the world, what did I learn from this? And how do I move forward? I remember the one of my favorite, like his AA and NA, they're always full of like such cliche sayings and like, get to giggle about them but one of my favorite ones is if you throw some shit at the wall some of it's gonna stick and so just knowing like you know you might like relapse but you've learned things and it never puts you back at square one like you're not back right where you started let's talk about all the things that you're carrying forward right it's not all or nothing it's some or something i like that and i think that that barrier to care that people experience through the stigma and through judgment that they can face really does make an impact on on how they're able to access care for all kinds of medical conditions as well as their substance use. I'm wondering how, Helen, do you see that best practices in that area when people have faced a lot of judgment and stigma accessing care? When I think about some of the people that I know, it's also working on the ability to like self-advocate because my mom was very shy and my grandma when she was in spaces she would like her whole body would change so her head would go down and her shoulders would kind of go in a little bit and she wouldn't make eye contact with people so learning how to I guess like be in space and advocate for yourself or ask questions or even say that's not it I remember a few years ago, there was an issue in one of my son's classes with someone who was doing a, a presentation and I put a complaint in and they were non-Indigenous, but they said it like, I've done this in like countless of classrooms over the years and I've never had a complaint. I was like, well, you think of a child in grade eight and grade nine has an issue. And like my son didn't even feel like saying he had an issue. He texted me like, <laughs> so he wasn't going to be able to tell you like, hey, this made me very uncomfortable. It was not appropriate. So thinking about even just in those situations like that, like there's so many people who won't say anything. Yeah, I think that what needs to be understood is that it's not the burden of Indigenous people to carry. It actually is a sign that Western um, medicine needs to be listening and needs to be understanding that there is biases. There is a, a colleague of mine, um, Patrick McLean, who has done some work here in, in Alberta about bias in the ED or in the emergency room. And of course, most of the physicians, and I have like lots of respected colleagues who, you know, who are very sensitive to what's going on with Indigenous people, but many others who are not. And they don't realize that even in their speech, they are being biased. It's not, you know, outward bias where you can say, this doctor said this to me and it's very racist. 
but you feel it. So he developed a, a study and it's been published using triage scores in the emergency room and showing that Indigenous people were triaged as less urgent with the same issues. So, you know, some of that is really tough research, but it's actually putting it back in the Western medical models that, you know, how are we actually treating other cultures, especially Indigenous cultures? And why are we free to stigmatize people without learning about the damage that it does? Mm -hmm. I wanted to talk about travel outside of rural communities, because I know this is something that is very common for people uh, in accessing care. Can you talk about some of the impacts of that, if you've seen that in your experience? Yeah, I think when people have to go outside of their communities to access care, there's a lot of things that come into play. I remember being in Haida Gwaii and talking with people there about access to care, which is a remote island like off of the coast of BC, and them talking about how a lot of times they have to go to Prince George to access care and how terrifying for some of them that is because that's Highway 16, which is the Highway of Tears and being like, when we have to go there, there's so much fear that also comes into that as well. And then there being so many like no cell service zones, even here in the Northeast too. And then how that can be a barrier for people in the first place of like, not wanting to. For some, it might be a plus because then they're like, hey, big city, <laughs> like I'll get to go eat food <laughs> or do whatever that looks like and go see healthcare professionals like outside of that space. But I think of people who, you know, I we have one elder who runs sweats and and they've been having to stay outside of the region for, I think, since summertime in order to access proper care. And I think of the impact because of like how people in my family are in regards to like, and what Esther said earlier, like sometimes people get better because they're loved and how sometimes people's family or their community or their land bases are a part of that medicine that keeps them well. And then if you're asking them to be removed from that in order to become well, it's kind of a little bit backwards or might work against itself to some degree. Yeah, thank you for that. So we often hear about the disproportionate impact of the toxic drug crisis on rural and Indigenous communities, but we hear less about the resilience and good work happening in these communities. Can you share some examples to healing and wellness that highlight these strengths? Yeah, I think it's been kind of great to be able to witness a lot more people becoming sober and a lot more people creating like wellness spaces in their own like kinship or friendship systems or whatever that looks like. So seeing people host like beating nights or getting together with other individuals or going hunting and seeing those pockets kind of strengthen where it's becoming, I would say more and more normalized to make that choice to become sober. And I can see the support systems growing too, which is kind of exciting where people are cheering other people on. And then I look at some of the other endeavors that have been happening within our territory in regards to some of the Dunaza communities, like even in regards to language and seeing that more present, seeing more young people working towards becoming speakers you know, there's a young fellow from one of the communities and he started a local podcast recently and just watching like our people kind of move into newer spaces here 
is really exciting to see, but also how we continue to come together when needed in terms of like drumming and singing and having those spaces of prayer for ourselves to be able to uplift each other. Hmm. I'm wondering for care providers working in rural and remote contexts, especially those who are not from the community or who are non-Indigenous, do you have any advice for how they could support an Indigenous client who wants to engage with their community and culture, how to connect them better? Yeah, I think sometimes communities will have something set up in terms of like a key person that they can connect with in order to build out those resources. I feel like everything is always a matter of relationships. If you're new in a space, going to community events, introducing yourself to community, sometimes it'll take a while before people trust you, right? Before you you kind of like make those connections or are able to know who the key people are. Thank you so much for that. I was thinking generally, what do you think healthcare providers can do to provide more culturally safe and trauma-informed as well as violence-informed care and accessible care to all our clients who are particularly those who are Indigenous? I feel like cultural safety training often has to happen like or originate from the regions that you're operating. So site-specific or region-specific, I think a big part of it is being very cognizant of like what you don't know and knowing that it's okay to ask questions that I found within work that I've done in social worker facilitator settings is like acknowledging dynamics from the jump and kind of putting people to ease. And you think of like when you sit in a circle with people and you're a facilitator, you always talk about how everybody within that circle is like equal. We're sitting shoulder to shoulder, right? So it's always a a back and forth and and um, approaching it from different ways like that. And then I think, you know, trauma-informed care is important. And if that looks like additional training, which is sometimes like theoretical, but then the application, which really like requires a lot of self-reflection in regards to how you're navigating situations and being like, okay, well, I messed up there. Like I could have asked it this way. I could have looked at it this way. I think this is all easy to say when you're not in like an overburdened system. I remember hearing this one time before the colonization of time where we don't give people enough time to reflect or respond to situations the way that we've expected people to operate and to work and how it might not favor, right, to be trauma-informed. It might not favor to be as mindful as they they need to be in order to develop a practice that is culturally safe in all of these things. Thank you so much, Helen. It's such an honor. And of course, we want to plug your book, Becoming a Matriarch, as well. So thank you so much for sharing your story, both through those books and with us here on this podcast. Writing is very inspirational. I thank you for being so courageous. And I love to hear the insight that you have on what's really happening for Indigenous people in addictions globally. I really appreciate that. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. And I appreciate being able to be in space here. That was a really powerful conversation, Esther. I, I I feel like we had we covered a lot of ground, and there's so much more to cover. But is there anything that stood out for you? 
The real value of this is that she's coming from a community that is remote and she's managed to do so much recovery on her own and is really helping a lot of people. It's so inspiring. I really love what she said about it's a process, it's a journey, and uh, we can support people in that journey, but only if we see it as where someone's at when they come to meet us or come to seek help. Yep, totally agree with that. I think that the perception of recovery is is so in a box, especially here in Alberta, that you know once you go to treatment, you should be fine. But we all know, and I know through experience, that it doesn't work that way. It's not a linear experience, recovery. And, you know, no human being is the same. So we don't know how, what the depth of their trauma is and what, on the other end of things, what the width of their support system is, you know. So no one person has one recipe for recovery. We end every episode of this podcast by sharing three clinical pearls of wisdom that we'd love our listeners to remember. Are there any three that strike you from today's episode, Esther? Yes, I think number one is the individual courage that people take to show their vulnerability is also part of um, the healing journey. And certainly Helen has shown a great amount of courage in her writing and putting herself out there in the pain that she experienced through her addiction. So definitely we have to take some of our shields down and show some vulnerability in our healing. The second thing is that even though those treatment and addictions and mental health services are accessible in terms of hospital accessibility, there still is a barrier in terms of bias towards Indigenous patients within those institutions. And even though it's an invisible barrier, it is a barrier for people to get the care that they need. And the third thing is that we see that every community has grandmothers and mothers and aunts and uncles and grandfathers who love them. And whether it not be your own grandparent or your own mother, it's so important to have that unconditional support in healing. And I think that even though it's not a paid service, it's definitely a measurement of how you can help somebody else through their recovery, and that is to care about them. Thanks so much for those, Esther. Thank you. Thanks again so much to our guest today, Helen Knott. To learn more about the work that she's doing, visit fiercewithheart.com. And if you're interested in learning more about Indigenous perspectives on substance use care and harm reduction approaches, you can find some additional resources in the show notes. And as usual, help us to create the best possible podcast by filling out our short survey. Just click the link to it in our show notes. This podcast comes from the BC Centre on Substance Use, with production from Cited Media. We're grateful for the time and expertise shared by Indigenous partners and collaborators related to producing this season. A special thank you to the Indigenous Initiatives team at the BCCSU for their guidance and support. This program was made possible through financial contributions from the BC Ministry of Health and BC Ministry of Mental Health and Addictions, with founding support from Doctors of BC and Health Canada. The views expressed in this podcast do not necessarily represent the views of these organizations. I'm David Ball. Thank you so much for listening, and see you next time.